not that there's anything wrong with the game mafia. I just love the idea of it to me is more. Yeah, a lot of like, like sassily like swinging bats, you know. <laughs> Some really good one-liners and then the snap. I just see them all like coming out of the alleyway, like all snapping and you know, in sync. I want to know is like, like who is their target? Like who, who are they going after? Like what? Is, everyone. Like I mean, homophobes. Like, like do they just kill homophobes. Well, I like in, a lot of people say they uh, gay mafia people control the entertainment industry. That would like, make a lot of the sense. The Sicilians and Frank Sinatra. It doesn't. Have you heard the story of and written on the wall? And everyone has the different stories of oh, this happened to my brother. This. Mister, telling you stories of the old. There was this girl. It was back when we were little kids. To find out the truth regarding one of the most enduring tales in American lore. A story behind the story. Because it's just a story. Hello and welcome to the Just a Story podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story. Each week we take a look at the tales we tell over and over again, what our myths and misdeeds, fears and fables say about us as humans. I want to take a second to thank all of our listeners for listening and spreading the word. You've just been growing and growing every week, and this is our 26th episode. It's growing, it's growing up. <laughs> I know. Soon it'll be off to college and coming home with STDs we have to go get seen about and, you know, flunking out of algebra. So speaking of going off to college and experimenting. <laughs> okay. This week's episode. Oh yes, the parlor pinks, the lavender lads. The gay mafia. The gay mafia. Bum bum bum. Now I know who the head of the gay mafia is. Uh so do I. It's Elton John. That's accurate. <laughs> I'm almost hundred percent positive. I mean I saw it on Will and Grace, like, when we were in college. <laughs> yeah, and at that time, Will and Grace was kind of the authority on everything, you know, LGBTQ, etc. I don't think they had many more initials no, at that no, time. No, no, we weren't no. that PC. Yeah, no. But yeah, as far as as far as that moment in time, that seems accurate. But I have another nomination. Okay. Dan Savage. I'm pretty sure he is <laughs> the head of the gay mafia, and I love him so much. We love you, Dan Savage. So now that we've both accepted that the gay mafia is real and of appointed, and appointed, uh, I mean, this is, I mean, we're done. Right. End of episode. Finished. That was easy. Yeah. Shit. Okay. <laughs> Mystery solved. So yeah, the gay mafia. This has been around for a while, and let's uh, hear some nonsensical ramblings from a rapper. A rapper. Yeah. I mean, I'm 99% sure that's what he is. Who is it? Is it Drake? No, that's Wheelchair Jimmy, silly, don't you? No, he's not a rapper. Yeah, that's that's Aubrey Graham. He's from Degrassi. His name, hold on, I have to look up the pronunciation. It's Fat Joe. What's a Fat Joe? A Fat Joe is a disgruntled hip-hop artist. What are some of his songs? Lean Back. Lean Back? Lean Back. Lean back. We just did the chorus. That's pretty much all there is to it. Yeah. How much money did he make off of that? Enough that people still talk to him sometimes. Okay. So what happened when they were talking to him? I'm just so excited to hear. He claimed that the hip hop industry is run by gay overlords. Oh, of course. Yes. And there's a gay mafia and they're in charge of the hip hop industry. Well, I knew that. They're, I mean, hip hop's like the gayest industry in the world. 
according to Fat Joe. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, obviously. Definitely. And he's like, you know, gays. Everybody got some gays in their house. Well. Like in their house? No, not in their actual. He clarifies that. Oh, it's like a Game of Thrones thing. Yes, like a Game of Thrones thing. It's like I'm the Targaryen house has at least one gay in, in their house. I'm sure. Actually seeing that sex position, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> the Targaryen? Yeah. Which house would you be in? Well, I really want to cosplay as Jon Snow. I know. And I really want to be Daenerys. That's why I went blonde. One day, when I feel like wearing skins and showing midriff, it will happen. Well, and so one person that I've heard speak about uh, the gay mafia is the pinnacle of manliness. I have a feeling we're going to have very different opinions on who the paragon of manliness is. It's Adam Carolla. Okay, he's the ironic pinnacle of manliness. He had the man show when I was like in high school or middle school. Were you titillated? I was. <laughs> I was like 12. It mad, was like, mad, mad, mad. Isn't that basically the theme song? Like, mad, 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 I mad, just mad, remember mad. the girls on trampolines. Okay. That's pretty much it. Yeah, you were the target audience. I was, yes. And I think he's continued to maintain that 11-year-old boy... I was about to say, but you, you grew out of it, and he's still... A little bit. Yeah, but I feel like it's a Matthew McConaughey moment where it's like, I keep getting older, and they stay the same age. Everybody has grown up, and there's Adam Carolla still being 11. Besides Adam Carolla's ridiculous comments, I don't even want to get into what he said. You also have my least favorite, even though I am a bleeding heart liberal, liberal commentator. Bill Maher. You know it. I don't hate Bill Maher. I don't know why you hate Bill Maher. Because he wants to wipe all the Muslims off the face of the earth. That's not exactly it. You're missing the finer points. He is so abrasive. He's just so abrasive. He can't make... Like, I feel like if a really nice guy came out and said some of the things he's saying, people would be like, okay, well, I see where you're coming from and the nuances of what you're saying. But with him, it just sounds like anger. Well, so much and, anger. And you do have to take what he says with a grain of salt. I just... Cannot take that much salt in my diet. <laughs> and my blood pressure goes up whenever he speaks. Yeah. Well, he said that he does believe in the gay mafia. And that if you cross them, you're going to get whacked. Well, kind of whacked. That was the joke. Exactly. So it was a joke. It but people a liked joke. It, And people like to list it as one of the reasons. But you know what I think of when I hear, think of gay mafia? Besides Will and Grace? Did you know that back in the day... The gay clubs were actually run by the mafia? I did know that. I learned that during my research for our Kitty Genovese episode. Some of the big ones were run by the Genovese family. Not related. No relation. But In including the Stonewall Inn. If you don't know what that is, we don't have time. Google it. Don't Google it. Just wait. I'm sure we'll do an episode on it eventually. Okay. Let, wait and let us tell you about it. We're so much better. But that's not where the term came from. I just think it's a fun little aside. Where does the term gay mafia come from? So the term was coined in the 1970s by a writer named Stephen Gaines. And he's been a very prolific pop culture commentator and cultural analyst for years and years. He does an NPR show, etc. But he was trying to describe this very elite clique that hung out at Studio 54 and so he called them the Gay Mafia, which I think is fabulous. It was kind of interchangeably used with Velvet Mafia. Love it. Which is so good. And so some of the members of the original Gay Mafia, and there's no arguing with it, are people like Calvin Klein, Truman Capote, 
Andy Warhol, Halston, Jan Winner, the co-founder of Rolling Stone magazine, etc. At all. So these were the glitterati of the time. Yes. I like glitterati so much. I feel like that's where the term has gone. You know, like in, in this incarnation, gay mafia has, I think, gone on to be glitterati. Originally, very glitterati, like very glamorous and exclusive and, you know, had a pretty positive connotation. But as with all good things, it's been co-opted by a different group. So famously, or infamously... In 2002, Michael Ovitz, who was a high-ranking executive with Disney, was fired. Not Disney. Yeah. And he, he contacted Vanity Fair, and he's like, I got a story to tell you. And so Vanity Fair says, all right. And the guy goes and talks to him, and he's called him to come do this interview because he wants to name names and let people know about the shadowy cabal that is running Hollywood. By the... Juice? No, no, not different shadowy cabal. Oh, different, completely made up bullshit cabal. Yeah. Okay. The gay mafia. He says that the gay mafia fired him from Disney. So did Vanity Fair actually buy this? Did they publish it like, this is ridiculous? They publish it like, this is ridiculous. The reporter says, that's what Ovitz believes. This is one of the driving factors in his decision to talk about what happened. A burning need to name names, to throw lights on the shadowy Hollywood cabal. He believes did him in. He calls it the gay mafia. Though several of its members aren't gay, and much of what he says about these men is nasty and unprintable. In Ovitz's eyes, the cabal's demagogic leader is the merciless Macbeth, Geffen who is laying waste to all Ovitz holds dear, spreading rumors about his family, and at the same time he was poisoning business deals that would have saved Ovitz, which are all things that Geffen denies. Wait, so I just put some pieces together. Yeah. Tim Burton. Yeah. Got his start yeah. at Disney. Mm-hmm. And then went on with Geffen mm-hmm. to make his first few movies. Yeah. Tim Burton is one of the dons of the gay mafia. It's all a conspiracy. Obviously. The reason all of his movies have been crap for the last 10 years... Is because he was kicked out of the gay mafia. For sure, I'm sure of it. Yeah, I know. And the only good one he's done... Was a musical. Sweeney Todd. Yeah. (gasps) Did you just put those pieces together? Mind. Blown, right? It all started with A Little Mermaid, Jacob. So what'd Geffen have to say about this, I'm sure... He was like, oh, yeah, the gay mafia, the, like the mafia, the group I get together with and discuss everything. Right after my Jew meetings, I go to my gay meetings. See, and we it, make is all a, the way- <laughs> it is a conspiracy. Like, that's actually what his quote was. He was like, oh, yes, after I get together with all the Jews and we decide how to dominate the world, then I go and meet with all the gays and we decide what to do. But uh, he was like, no, it's ridiculous. It's insulting. How dare he? And it was all included in this article. So it did not come off as a glowing portrait of Ovitz. Essentially, all the men that were interviewed about why he was let go were like, nobody needed to interfere. He was doing a great job of getting himself in a bad position all by himself. I feel like that was probably when it came back into common usage. Like, I think that's around the time of the Will and Grace episode. And then you have a few other gaffes in the last few years where the gay mafia has been cited. But it's tied to the arts, it goes way back. Maybe that like super cool exclusive click glittery status is still there, but it's also really gotten mixed down with another 
iteration of fears about gay people controlling media. And there's a word for that, too. Ooh, what is it? The Hominturn. Okay, I, I mean, I know what a gay mafia is. I can put what glitterati is together. But what is a Hominturn that sounds like either a ancient type of human or possibly a disease? <laughs> It's actually sort of put together the same way that glitterati is. You know, like it's a mashup of two words. Mm -hmm. So it's a mashup of the word homosexual and then the word common turn. Don't know. Okay, it's because we were born kind of after the Cold War. No, we were born during the Cold War. We just didn't know about it. We weren't living in bomb shelters, okay? Common turn is a word that was used to denote someone who is a communist international. So someone who is not part of a communist nation, but was out in the larger world supporting the communist cause. So that was coined by W.H. Auden, who is a poet, and he coined the term in 1940. Okay, I recently read an article about him. What did you read? He had an unpublished poem, supposedly by him, although he denied it, called The Platonic Blow. Is it about balloons? No. Hey, I'll give you a, a clue. It was recently published in the Best American Erotic Poems. It's about oral sex. You know what? We almost got enough votes to do our 10-hour-long Nazi cow episode. I'm so, so glad we didn't. <laughs> but I'm going to throw another challenge out there. If we get... Five people asking for one of us to read this poem. We will do it. But you have to specify which one of us you want to read it. That's right. So, challenge. No, actually, I've read it. It's the filthiest thing I've ever read in my life. Like, I felt like everyone that was driving by when I was reading it knew what I was reading. Like, you could see my thought bubble, and I was so embarrassed. <laughs> we will not giggle while reading it. We will edit out our giggles while <laughs> we read it. So, mashup of communist and homosexual. Common term. Wait, why are we mashing up communism and homosexuality? So, before we get into that, which is a very interesting answer, I promise, we're going to need to talk a little bit about what the art scene was like during the Cold War. Sure, so what was going on at the time? So, there's a long, proud history of gay artists. I mean, people are like, Walt Whitman and Tchaikovsky. And this has always been true. But at this moment, we have some real paragons coming to the forefront. We have people like Tennessee Williams, my personal favorite of maybe all time. New uh, Orleans. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Streetcar Named Desire, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, The Glass Menagerie. We got some of my favorites, including Jasper Johns, the great American pop artist of the 50s and forward. You have Allen Ginsberg. One of the greatest beat writers and poets. I wore my Howl t-shirt yesterday. You did? I think to pick up the kids from daycare. I did. And on the back of it, it says... Starving, hysterical, naked. Yes. Yeah, it sure does. And then another amazing writer, Truman Capote. Oh my God. Capote voice time. Okay, and then you have composers like Aaron Copeland, Samuel Barber, and Leonard Bernstein. Sounds like a rent line. I feel like we're doing La Vie Bohème. Like, we don't even mean to. Oh, and then you have those gorgeous Hollywood silver screen icons like Montgomery Clift and Rock Hudson, who were just dreamy. Yeah, they had the, the briefcases and the lunches. Um, not following. 
You really don't know this story? I don't know this story. Okay. So, back in the day, as we've been talking about, it was looked down upon to be gay. And there were also, of course, these paragons of masculinity, for real, not like Adam Carolla. And they had to be kept up as dreamboats. Mm-hmm. And so there was no way the studios would let them be out. Right. And so they would go to lunch meetings. The lunch meetings were actually you know, dates. They would go in to meet their partners. Okay. But they would bring along briefcases with them to make it look like they were having a business lunch. And the briefcases were empty. So we were just like a turn of phrase away from, instead of coming out of the closet, opening the briefcase. A missed opportunity. (laughs) Opening the brief. Pretty sure that's a line from Auden's home. And then you have people like James Baldwin, who's a beautiful writer. Gore Vidal. Definitely. Uh, Playwright, novelist. Incredible writer as well. One of the American greats. I mean, all of these people are. Like, this is not, we're not grasping at straws to find people who were, you know, very prominent at this moment. Yeah, for sure. I mean, this was the development of America's mass culture. Right. And so, while there had always been very powerful, prominent Artist in in all the senses of the words, you know, composers, writers, etc., who were gay. Now there were gay people in everybody's living room every night because of radio. You know, like we were listening to Barber, we're listening to Bernstein, whatever, or we're seeing you know Rock Hudson and Montgomery Clift at the movies. If we're so lucky, oh my god, the roads are pretty. Um, you have the beats just completely yeah. out there, completely just wearing it all out. And some of these writers as well. They're not hiding anything. Capote. Yeah. I don't think Capote had much of a choice. And of course, Gorvadel. You have people that now have a way to disseminate their ideas and further their agendas to these mass audiences. I mean, we're probably going to influence the entire country to do our every whim, our bidding, beck and call, whatever. Because we can get to them so easily now. Yeah, so they started to... Not just question the media that was being made, but the people that were making it. Right. This was exasperated by the fact that, you know, this is a cultural Cold War going on at this time. We are very concerned with our American identities. We needed to represent ourselves as a strong nation through opera or whatever, you know, like we needed to get out there and make an impression. There was a big concern about what it said about our national character that these were the representatives, our ambassadors to how, the greater world. How terrible. Yeah. So people like Edmund Burglar said things. We're going to talk more about Edmund Burglar later, but let me just start you off with this little nugget of burglar. A sousant of burglar. A sousant. Homosexuals have launched a drive not only to be accepted as equals of normal man, but honored. As a special breed, the repository of most of the world's artistic talent. The horror. No. Yes. Just keeping it all for themselves and then giving it to everybody. Yeah. It's a real shame because Freud, you know, have you heard, have you heard of Freud? No, who's that? Sigmund Freud, he's this guy. He's, he talks no. about penises a lot. Uh, yeah. So, okay. So <laughs> Freud says that before the creative artist, analysis must Alas, lay down its arms. So he's like not even going to attempt it. He's like, you know, they're their own kind of crazy. And if you mess with the crazy, maybe you mess with the art. And I'm just not even going to go there. I feel like I've had some of those experiences. 
with Freud. Artist. Um, that I live with. Yeah. So Freud gets it. And Freud also believed that everyone was kind of innately bisexual. Right. I mean, he talks about the different explorations in his very important work, Sexuality and the Psychology of Love. This might also have something to do with the kind of American identity that we wanted to have at the moment. Because a lot of people doing Freudian psychoanalysis at this time are immigrants from other nations. And it's like they just want to get on board with whatever America's got going on. We're Freudians, but America. Right. Jump in the melting pot. Yeah. You know, I, I thought it was interesting. I think it was in college or AP history or something where they talked about the melting pot being a negative thing. Mm-hmm. And I'd always thought of it as like a super positive thing. I was a kid reading books. And I was like, no, you would jump in there and you'd lose your identity. You would all mix in and everyone would be the same in the melting pot. I thought that was just so interesting. Yeah. It makes me think about that scene in Middlesex where um, he's going to work for Henry Ford. They come in in like the native dress of their native lands and then they go in the melting pot and come out in suits. Yes, 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 yes. yes. I didn't exactly know exactly what you're oh, It's, it's one of my favorite scenes in the whole book. Uh, which Middlesex is Samantha's favorite book it really is novel it's- favorite novel oh yeah true i don't read a lot of fiction and it's by jeffrey Janitis. and if you haven't read it you should probably pause it won every award known to man because it should have you know sometimes it just should have and it, it's excellent and it's- so pause go, go read it, it. Yeah. yeah okay okay um, we'll, be, we'll be here you'll see it kind of relates to this a little bit <laughs> loosely roundabout way something in addition to critiquing the people that are making the art, they started picking the art itself apart from a really petty but highbrow intellectual standpoint. You know, this is not just some guy being like, I don't get art. These are very intelligent people who are writing really scathing criticisms of what kind of art gay people are capable of making. I'm doing air quotes. I know you can't see. Because of their restless, transitory nature, they went to creative work because they wanted to offset their feelings of being discredited and outcast. While their work is fashionable, it's stale and lacking emotional commitment. Is that your New Yorker author voice? I, that is how I imagine Mr. Hatterer to speak. I don't, I don't really have any basis. What if he's like from Jersey and he speaks like Joe Mulvey? Then no one would have ever taken him seriously. We wouldn't be reading this right now. <laughs> Who wants to hear what Queen's Joe Mulvey, our friend, sounds like? Uh, Just listen to the Amityville Horror episode. Yeah, thanks, Joe. (laughs) One thing I thought was super interesting about that in particular is that this is whenever highbrow culture started to be looked at in a very negative light in America. Mm Mm-hmm. Everything should be questioned and poked apart. And there was this big argument about how these gay men were full of style but had no substance. And, you know, there was a big concern about art versus artifice. and Right, that how could they be making art? There's no way they could understand it because they're faking it all the time? Yeah. Oh, of course. Because, you know, they're hiding these secrets, and so they can't ever really... Oh, because no artist has secrets. No, but they, they're hiding secrets, and, you know, they're, they don't even, you know, what, know what it would be like to be in love because they only... whatever. You know, they have no experience with family life. How are they going to write a woman? Well, I can tell you how to write a woman. <laughs> you think of a man. 
and take away all reason and accountability. Yeah, no, I've seen as good as it gets too. Like, really, straight men can write women any better. They're basically like ironing machines at this point for straight men. I just don't buy it. I don't think anyone's relating on a deep personal level. Well, and speaking of that, there's a really interesting crossroads here between the rising kind of homosexuality gay movement and feminism. They didn't like each other so much. Both groups didn't like no, each other? No, it was really just the feminists. The feminists were like really not hip on the gays. I don't know what that was about. Feminine mystique, Betty for Dan, she was really homophobic. Yeah, I was surprised to find out that she was so, so homophobic. Well, I think it's because there was a switch at this point in psychological study, which really took the idea of the gender invert which is what homosexuals had been referred to until this point in history. Of course. So it was believed that they were just men who wanted to be women or women who wanted to be men. Oh, of course. Obviously. There was no component of sexual attraction. It was just that. You can't be manly and be gay. No. No, I mean, obviously, Rock Hudson, whatever. So this is the old model. But during this moment, we get the gynophobic model. Okay. You know a little Latin? You do a little Latin for us? Pig Latin? It's never very good at that. Gyne, so it's the female genitals, mm-hmm. like gynecology. Phobia, so fear of. Yes. So fear of the vagina. Vagina fear. Ah! Yes. Not a giant vagina is coming to eat It me. has teeth! No. So ah, that was... an interesting movie. What? What movie? So the gynophobic model was promoted and that made people even more afraid because now it wasn't just gender inverts it wasn't just womanly men and manly women it was people who were afraid of the genitals that they were supposed to love and so anyone could be gay no rock hudson could be gay he's my idol But he could be gay. Well, I can't be my idol anymore. I mean, obviously. So this is like a little bit of what the panic is about because people are beginning to understand that there's a broader spectrum of sexuality than previously thought. It's not just the comic relief fop that has been put forward. And and it's still put forward. Yeah, I know. Gay best friend. Oh my God, girl. You have got to leave that man. Sassy advice. Another interesting thing at this point in time was the development of the concern about these communal fraternities. So kind of Mm. what the gay mafia concern is, that they're all hanging out together, getting together, making an agenda, pushing their plans forward. Yeah, right. David Geffen, definitely. This is a quote from Schlesinger. Communists can identify each other on casual meetings by the use of certain phrases, names of certain friends, By certain enthusiasms and certain silences. It's like that scene from Prost where characters recognize their common corruption. You're going to quote Prost in an anti-gay thing? Yeah, he did it. He totally did it. But that was a big thing that happened. A lot of times people would take gay writers or gay artists' words out of context and use them against them. Um, We were just talking about art and artifice. One of the quotes that's bandied about all the time is like gay men have an exceptional ability to embroider decorate and ornament and a a gay man said that but then it was used as evidence that they had no substance for ever trotted out as an argument in every paper that was like they're hollow shells of people which was most of them for a while 
And here's another gross thing about it. He got the idea that communists were like those characters from Prost who recognize common corruption from Prost, but also from Gore Vidal. Because Vidal, in The City and Pillar, a novel, wrote that occasionally two homosexuals meet in the great world. And when they did, by a quick glance, they acknowledge each other. And like amused conspirators observed the effect that each was having. It was a kind of Freemasonry. Freemasons. Oh, God, Tim Burton's a Freemason. Illuminati. What? I knew it. <sighs> so there's this weird moment where people are like, gays recognize each other. We don't recognize them, but they recognize each other. Communists recognize each other. We don't recognize them, but they recognize each other. They're the same. Science. Boom. If you float, you're not a witch. It's about that kind of science. Does she weigh the same as a duck? But so they were conflated to the point where a senator from around this time, Margaret Chase Smith, said that she believed that about nine out of ten people thought they were the same thing, meaning communist and homosexuals. I feel like this is a how is a raven like a writing desk thing without an answer. (laughs) Like, it's just two completely arbitrary categories of human beings. Another important point about this time period is that Washington, D.C., which is the capital of the nation. Wait, what? Yeah. It's not even a state. It was becoming a really metropolitan city because as the Great Depression was ending and all of Roosevelt's programs were coming into play and then World War II starting, there was a need for a lot of civil service. So a lot of people were moving from their small towns from all across the country to Washington, D.C. to get these jobs. Right. And these were civil service jobs. These were jobs working for the government. So there was a non-discrimination policy in place. People were given aptitude tests and people who scored highest on the aptitude test were given the job. I want to be clear that there was not a non-discrimination program against homosexuals. Well, there was nothing in place. Right. It was just that they looked at the test. Whoever got a 90 was hired. Whoever got an 89 was not. Yeah. So it was a blind hiring process. Because it was a blind hiring process, people didn't, like, pick the pretty girl with a low-cut dress. Oh, this is ruining my madman fantasy. You can still do that on Madison Avenue. It's perfectly acceptable. Uh, okay, good. So anyone could be hired for these jobs. And a gay subculture began to grow. There were several gay bars, and gay civil service men and women at the time said that work environments were very okay to work in. They Everyone just kind of turned a blind eye to it. You did your job. You did it well. That's all that mattered. You mean they were just kind of like people? Isn't that weird? I know, right? right? It's not just that you can't be discriminated against on paper. It's also that there were a lot of young people away from home for the first time have their walking around money and they're single and young and as pretty as they're ever going to be and they're in the big city so there's a singles scene and there are cruising spots and one of the popular cruising spots was at lafayette park which Mm -hmm. is across from the white house okay time started to go by people started to worry about that gay culture taking hold they started worrying about America's morality. Oh, God. Does this sound familiar? Yeah. Worried about America's morals? Yeah. Yeah. Want to go back to the good old days? Yeah. People saw 
post-war era DC as a white-collar town full of long-haired men and short-haired women. Oh no. Social scientists and other experts were imposing their ideas on this country. Certain parties began... Grand old parties? Yeah, I would say so. Began to push through some legislation and rules and... Regulations. And regular, yeah. And there okay. started to be crackdowns on this. No. And so Congress passed a sexual psychopath law for Washington, D.C. It wasn't called that. There's no way it was actually called that. No. Yeah. No. And, yeah. No. Yeah. No. Yeah. So all of these programs are starting to be pushed through. It became a big concern, the morality of America. Eisenhower and Nixon, when they ran in 1952, said they were regular guys. Who were for morality. Joe Sixpack, Maverick, what? Exactly. And they kept saying their opponent, Stevenson, was fruity and they passed around rumors that he was gay. And once they ran the election to let's clean house was their slogan, mm. um, you know, which meant communism, corruption, and of course those terrible gays. It was Lavender Lads, as one senator loved. Even before Eisenhower... Even Truman, good old Harry, was a bit concerned about the Lavender Lads. He was concerned, but he did not go to these extremes. No, but he did have a great quote, and I'm going to share it with you now. All artists, with a capital A, the parlor pinks, the soprano-voiced men, are banded together. I'm afraid they're a sabotage front for Uncle Joe Stalin. Oh, no, not Uncle Joe Stalin. Why is he an uncle? I just I think know. the whole thing is so bizarre. If Uncle Sam, Uncle Stalin. They're like hanging out. They're like drinking some They're beer. the creepy uncles yes. at like family gatherings. But you're right. So during the final months of Truman's administration, the State Department did fire 425 employees for being gay. It doesn't get worse, does it? Oh, of course it does. <sighs> and so in 1953, an executive order signed by Eisenhower made it illegal to hire homosexuals. There's no really good clear number of how many people were fired. A good estimate is 5,000 people. And so you would they'd be fired from the government, but also a lot of private sector jobs had trouble because they couldn't get security clearance. They would never actually say why people were not granted security clearance. So they would just like stamp no on it and send it back. And then your boss would go, you must be gay. And you'd be fired. This makes my head hurt. One of the programs with a great name was at the U.S. State Parks Department called the uh, Sexual Pervert Elimination Program. Okay, yeah, that doesn't sound holocausty at all. Yeah, and there were several other programs where they would send out uh, undercover cops. Would they wear disguises? I think they would just wash. And they would go out to parks and other meeting places uh-huh. for gay men. Where like they would cruising go spots, mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. They would you know, make eye contact with them, kind of signal that they were interested. And then whenever the other person would come up and proposition them they would you know flash their badge and be like uncle sam says this ain't okay and he'd be arrested so lots of men were picked up this way cruising in parks and not the way they wanted to be picked up at all yeah quickly lost their job were completely blacklisted yeah blacklisted embarrassed if they didn't want to be out i mean there were people that don't even identify as gay that were just you know experimenting and 
this happened. And one of those was Lester Hunt Jr. of Wyoming. His father was of Wyoming. His father was a senator. And since he was junior, it was obviously Lester Hunt Sr. Jr. was out one night and he decided to go walk through Lafayette Park. And he saw a guy and the guy kind of looked at him, kind of made a face. And he was kind of like, ah, this could be fun. And so he kind of went up and he was like, hey, this could be fun. And the guy was like, no, it couldn't. Shows in the back. Yeah. Uncle Sam says no. Uncle Sam says just say no. So he was charged, brought in, arrested. They dismissed the charges, no big deal. But then there was an outcry. They're showing favoritism to this kid because he's a senator's son. Obviously, he needs to be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. Yeah, the only reason they would want to do that is because... So this guy's a Democrat from Wyoming. Right, and he was a big opponent of Senator McCarthy. No, not Senator McCarthy. No one was an opponent of Senator McCarthy except communists and cocksuckers. That's a real quote. That's real quote. <laughs> His dad was a Democrat from Wyoming, and he was against Senator McCarthy. So it was very easy to want to embarrass him and make him look bad. So they went to the papers. They made it news. They got people on the bandwagon saying, no, this kid needs to face some real consequences for his actions, which were, hey, this could be fun. So they brought him back to court, and they said he could either do 30 days in jail or pay a $100 fine. And his dad is sitting there beside him being incredibly supportive through this entire ordeal for this time in history. I was very impressed. Yeah, one documentary we watched, they said that you could visibly see him age. So that was great. Yeah, and they showed it. He had, like, brownish, like, salt and pepper hair and was completely white-haired at the end of the experience. They said 30 days in jail or $100 fine. His dad reaches in his pocket and takes out a $100 bill and hands it to the judge. Right, he was prepared to pay that fine. He knew. Yeah, he was like, okay. He knew that they was going to be found guilty. He just wanted it behind him. And he's there. He takes care of it for his kid. But he's like, okay, fine. You have your witch hunt here. Let's move on. But he's kind of the only one that wants to move on. Well, and that's because McCarthy and his cronies can use this. Right. They don't want him running again. Well, they don't want him winning. And so they tell him that if he doesn't, Back out of the race, they're going to mail off flyers to everyone in his constituency, telling them what happened. This guy was not going to back out of the race. No. He was not going to let them have their victory that way. So he went to his office one day and shot himself. It's terrible. It's a real human cost. You know, this is a lovely man who wore sunflower bow ties. He's the cutest guy maybe ever. And his son, you know, went on and got married and had kids and lived in Chicago, like had a very normal life, contributed to society and was not some deviant monster that needed to be kept away from society. Or You just have to wonder who would do this. Well, we've already mentioned one of them. <laughs> Senator Joseph McCarthy. Oh, God. Does that ring a bell? <sighs> yes, Senator McCarthy. Senator McCarthy was kind of like Fox News before there was Fox News. Oh, that's a good analogy. <laughs> yeah, like he just wanted everyone to be afraid of everything all the time. And he was definitely the mouthpiece for the movement uh, that's now come to be known as the Red Scare. Uh, the Subcommittee on Anti-American Activities. Right, he is who started compiling lists of people that must be communists, card-carrying communists, as he said. If McCarthy is the mouth of this movement. Hoover is the asshole. So McCarthy is like out there kind of drumming up fear 
and panic and all manner of mayhem. Meanwhile, you have J. Edgar Hoover, the director of the FBI, and his real-life, honest-to-God, shadowy cabal on the opposite end of the movement, but working toward the same agenda. So let's talk about McCarthy. He's the mouthpiece. Yes. He is the man on the radio. He is the one calling for us to say something about your neighbors that might yeah. be having communist activities. Un-American activities. Of course. Right? Because if you are doing anything against America... You must be communist. Or... Or gay. You Most know, likely both, because they're basically the same thing. Right. Well, I mean, that is a really interesting thing, because he did conflate the two. And everyone kind of knows about the Red Scare you learn about in history class. Just try to dust off those old memories, and maybe in your English class. Yeah, uh, you probably read The Crucible by Arthur Miller, who was married to Marilyn Monroe. Fun fact. But it is a very thinly veiled allegory for the modern-day witch hunt that was McCarthy's Red Scare. You know, we're talking about our favorite things. My favorite play is Death of a Salesman. I think we've already said that we saw Death of a Salesman performed by Philip Seymour Hoffman and Andrew Garfield. But if anybody didn't know that, it's totally true. And Philip Seymour Hoffman played Capote. Oh my god, it really is a shadowy cabal. I knew it. So, these two things were conflated. There are a lot of reasons why this could have happened. Some of it is those psychological ideas we've mentioned, and we'll get into some more, that these people were just weak and disturbed. That they were immoral or godless. Wait, communists or homosexuals? Both. Oh, I see, I see. That's why. I see. And, you know, that they had these hidden subcultures and their own uh, meeting places and cultural codes and bonds of loyalty. Also an important point, they were concerned that they would be easily blackmailed. Has anyone in the history of the whole world ever been blackmailed because they were gay? I mean, did they have any reason to think that that was true? Well, besides the fact that they were establishing a system that would allow people to be blackmailed. True. Because if it didn't matter that you were gay... There would be no consequence, right? It would be perfectly fine. Not that there's anything wrong with that. No, there's nothing wrong with that. There was one guy. Maybe. One man who was blackmailed because he was homosexual? Well, kind of. Like, so they did, of course, do a investigation uh-huh. by the Senate. And they looked into this, trying to see where all of these uh, homosexuals were invading the government. Uh-huh. And they could not find any proof. <laughs> the only thing they could cite was this old story about Colonel Riddell. Okay. Who was an Austrian double agent around World War One, And he was gay. Yeah. And there were rumors that he was blackmailed about this. No real truth to that, though. A lot of scholars now think that the Russians knew that he was gay a long time before that. And we're just like, what else? Yeah. Well, they were immoral, godless people, so it didn't matter. Oh, you're yeah. right. Because, I mean, why would communists care if you were gay? Right. <sighs> Silly. So they have one guy who was maybe blackmailed because he was gay, and then they do a study... And they don't find anything else. They don't find anything else. But with their report, they still emphatically state that homosexuals posed a threat to national security and needed to be removed from all federal agencies. Of course, because that's logical. Yeah, and you know, mentioning uh, what we said a second ago, there was concern that communists were promoting this sexual perversion among American youth to weaken the country and to... Right, let's see if this sounds familiar. Okay. Damage the American family. Oh, goodness. 
and create moral decay of America's morals. Are you just reading Fox News? I feel like you're just reading Fox News. I mean, I might as well be. <sighs> and one great quote. Was that the Huey report? Or it the, was. It's a it bunch was. of Huey. I it's mean, Huey. like. <laughs> it's Huey. I just, I want that to be where the term came from. And I know it's not. I know. I want to look into it, but it's like, I kind of don't want to ruin the illusion for myself. Someone go edit Wiki now. Let's see if we have (laughs) Stephen Colbert power. Yeah. It wasn't just McCarthy. A lot of people were concerned about this. Even in 1950, the Republican national chairman, Guy George Gabrielson, said that, quote, sexual perverts who have infiltrated our government in recent years are perhaps as dangerous as the actual communists. Meaning that as Americans, we have a right to believe whatever we want and a freedom of speech and all those things. And that's actually protected by the Constitution. No, it's ridiculous. Yeah, okay. I'm just making sure we're in the same page. Well, it continued on after McCarthy as well. Because in office, as as Nixon, you know, thank God for this, but a lot of his conversations were recorded. I don't know if you heard. Did you know that? <laughs> yeah. A lot of Nixon's private conversations were recorded. This is this, a, a tidbit, a little sousson, again, <laughs> of Nixon. He says, homosexuality, dope, immorality in general. These are the enemies of strong societies. That's why communists and left-wingers are pushing it. That's a great impression. I don't want my voice out there saying those words. So McCarthy and his supporters were big into pushing this anti homosexual movement with some even encouraging him to drop the whole card carrying communist thing and focus on the gay thing well that's because sex perverts ousted from office gets a lot more headlines which were literal headlines like 126 sex perverts fired from state department is an actual headline from the new york times those were more attention getting headlines we didn't care if so-and-so was a communist after a while. We're like, yeah, we just assume anyone who reads is whatever. Well, he lost a lot of support when he started going after people in the army and after the Lester Hunt incident. Which is understandable. He's actually one of the only senators that was censured by the rest of the Senate. McCarthy? Yeah. He deserved it. Oh, 100%. He deserved it. He deserved to be tarred and feathered and things. Sorry. We do not support tarring and feathering people in the Just a Story podcast and Lester McCarthy. Well, an interesting, just quick little aside is that McCarthy's chief counsel was Roy Cohn. Okay. And he was in charge of this. He was the chief counsel of the Congressional Subcommittee. And turns out later that he died of AIDS in 1986. Well, maybe he was just using drugs. Because no. that's not immoral. Well, and that would be whatever. But no, he was, he was gay. Oh, well, McCarthy never married. Well, he died at 46. Of liver cirrhosis. Yeah, dude, his alcoholism. Which is not immoral. Not immoral. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Not that there's anything wrong with that. But if you're going to be out there going like, we must be moral. Ah. But someone that had really an even bigger influence over a longer period of time. Who was just like scarier in general. He really was, is J. Edgar Hoover. J. Edgar Hoover is a Batman villain. He like, looks like Yeah, one. I mean, I feel like he just, uh, he, gives, he gives me the little I mean, he has that mincing gait and that perfume. He does not wear perfume. <laughs> there was a magazine article in the 30s that described J. Edgar Hoover's mincing gait 
and his copious perfume. Oh my. And so Hoover very quickly retorted, I do not wear perfume. Mincing Gate really can't deny it. <laughs> not there's anything wrong with the Mincing Gate. We've now entered the not that there's anything wrong with that section of the Just a Story podcast. Right, so why was Hoover so scary? So we tell you a story, because that's kind of what we do here. I was once standing in line for a porta potty at ACL. At Austin State Limits. Yes. And this girl comes up to me and she's at the level of drunk where she's touching strangers' hair, which is a very particular level of drunk. Yeah, that's, that's just yeah. before falling down in your own vomit and not really noticing that it happened. So she says to me, I need to tell you something. And she looks like she does. Did you know? Did you know that Martin Luther King was an adulterer? Did you know that? And she just like starts crying because she's at that level of drunk. Yeah, I watched this happen. Yeah. And she's like, I just can't believe that. He's such a good man. How could he do that? And like has this whole comma part in the middle of ACL in line for the porta potty about Martin Luther King being an adulterer. And I decided to go check that out and see if there was any way that the drunk girl knew what she was talking about. You can learn a lot of truths from drunk girls in line at porta potties at music festivals. I don't want to talk about your college experience, okay? But so she says to me that he is an adulterer. I go home. I get on the internet and I look into it. Turns out, yeah, that was kind of a little bit true. But the reason we know that is because J. Edgar Hoover was doing surveillance on Martin Luther King. And he overheard him with the woman who was not his wife on the wiretap that put in his room. He was having him tailed. He was sending him letters urging him to commit suicide. Yeah, he was worried about King becoming a Christ figure. And this is a great example of what Truman was worried about, about J. Edgar Hoover. He was worried that Hoover was creating a Gestapo. I feel like that's not that crazy. In quotes, uh... He was dabbling in sex life scandals and plain blackmail. So he was going after everybody that was against his agenda. He was seeking power. He was against the new left. So that would include the civil rights movement, including Martin Luther King, Malcolm X. Black Panthers. Black Panthers. He was against Student Nonviolent Action Committee. Did go after the KKK a little bit. He did. He was not fond of them either. I think he was jealous of their fancy clothes. He just wanted that, that hat. Grand wizard. I think he wanted the title. Oh, yeah. He definitely wanted the title. Definitely. And a lot of this actually came out while he was in office. Right. Because some freaking adorable hippies, <laughs> not hippies, protesters broke into an office and stole his files. Like, seriously, it was like a mom and dad, the cutest little couple you've ever seen in your life, and their friend Keith. <laughs> there were actually eight people, but yeah. those are the ones that there are four identified that came forward. So, like, their friend Keith and those two went and, like, took a crowbar and broke into the FBI and stole secret files and mailed them out to newspapers. Right, and they broke the COINTELPRO story. And that is a fun rabbit hole that you should go down on your own if you want to, or you can wait till we do that episode in a few months. So that's the kind of things that sh- old Shady Jay... Was up to. Yeah, and of course, going after homosexuals is another part of it and going against the newly formed gay rights movement. Mm -hmm. He also didn't like feminists. He didn't like anybody. (laughs) 
You know what? I think he didn't like himself most of all. Like, he's somebody I get that sense from. You know, like, he just was so self-hating. Right, but he continued what McCarthy started. He was using this for blackmail. He was gathering files on anybody and everybody that might be against his agenda. Let's talk about some of the people he really did not like that you would be surprised that he did not like. Charlie Chaplin. John Lennon. Truman Capote. So with Charlie Chaplin... When Chaplin made the film The Great Dictator, which was a film that was meant to make people realize how terrible Hitler was and also encourage them not to be afraid of him. You know, satire. Yeah, like one of the most classic and best forms of humor. Yeah, satire. Well, that really got Jay's goat. Did he have a goat? Kind of looked like a goat. (laughs) Batman fights goat man (laughs) in... The Lavender Scare. The Mincing Gate. Do you, Robin, do you smell that perfume? Do you hear that Mincing Gate? Holy high heel pumps, Batman. Sorry, guys. We'll get back on track. No, I'm sorry. The fanfic's too good. I can't stop. Okay. So, did not like Chaplin. After the film came out, he was very teed off about it. And I just think that's sort of interesting because Franklin Delano Roosevelt actually wrote to Chaplin and was like, you should really continue with the making of this film. It's very important that you do this. It got so bad for Charlie that he eventually excommunicated himself to Sweden and never came back. So one of our greatest leaders supported one of our greatest artists and one of our most terrible people in the government hated him. Yeah. Shocking. Yeah, I know, right? So there's something really interesting about Hoover. You know, he went after all of these gay rights groups and every other group that could be considered on what was coined the new left. But I'm going to give you another Nixon quote. All right. To tell you about it. Should I do it? Because I've got a really good Nixon voice. No, it's previously discussed. I think I got it. You sure? Yeah. But I like to talk like that. Yeah. Rest your voice. Have some wine. Whenever Hoover died in 1972, Nixon eulogized him. That's kind. Yeah. And as one of our greatest orators. <laughs> this previously discussed. He said he was one of the giants, a national symbol of courage, patriotism, and granite-like honesty and integrity. And then he giggled a little. I was going to say, like, how did he, like, get through this without being like, just kidding? But in private, as we talked about, everything was recorded. And whenever he found out that Hoover died, he said, Jesus Christ, that old cocksucker. (laughs) Not that there's anything wrong with that. (laughs) So it's pretty well documented that Hoover had a relationship with his companion, Clyde Tolson, who was eventually his second in command. They dined daily together. They vacationed together. They did everything but move in together. There were several first-hand accounts of them holding hands, quote, kissing and ass-grabbing. He was even arrested on sexual charges when he was young in... Well, the only place that one should ever get arrested on sexual charges when they're young is New Orleans. Yes, New Orleans, not Texas, sorry. Yeah, sorry. No, sexual deviancy kind of belongs on Bourbon Street. He did see a psychologist for some time earlier in his life, uh, Marshall Ruffin. Ruffin was very concerned that he had some problems, that he had some serious family issues with an overbearing mother, that he had narcissistic personality disorder. Just a skosh. And, of course, his suppressed homosexuality, Uh. which is where he felt 
He got a lot of that anger. But eventually... He was really angry. That's he, why I think he was so scary. Yeah, Hoover only saw him for a little bit. The psychologist and his wife actually burned the notes. Well, that is very well documented. It's still a little controversial, but there's a lot of documentation to support yeah. that. One of the... L- kind of less supported, more rumor-like things, is that Hoover was a cross-dresser. That's the one I've heard more, actually. Yeah, maybe it's just a little more salacious or No, humorous. I'm sorry. That image is so good. Right, it's just humorous to think of him in that way because he's he always pushes himself as this, like, oh, I'm the most masculine man. There's no way I'd ever have a mincing gait kind of thing. No, he didn't deny the mincing gait. <laughs> you're right, you're right. Yeah. You know, now there's anything wrong with cross-dressing. No, and it's like our episode. Well, like when we started discussing this, like Jacob was like, he was gay. And I was like, no, he was just a cross dresser. And then we had a big discussion about that. And I was like, oh, well, maybe he was gay. And the cross dressing thing is made up. But I, um, I bring it up because there's the most amazing quote from one of the funniest presidents uh it was clinton in 1993 whenever he was trying to name a new fbi director it said quote it's gonna be hard to fill j edgar hoover's pumps and then i just imagine he like put his sunglasses on and played a saxophone and just like pulled a saxophone out <laughs> Like they did that, but I'm but on saxophone. Exactly, I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> almost positive that happens. It's not in the transcripts, but I'm almost 100 percent positive. You know what? Now, it, now that's the way that happened. Now it is. Yeah. Someone fixed that wiki too. <laughs> but I feel like we've covered Tricky Dick and Slick Willie. So now back to J. Edgar. <laughs> well, the last thing I wanted to mention about J. Edgar is one of the many biographies about him by Richard Hack in 2004. He was talking about how Truman Capote was actually beginning interviews to write about Hoover and Tolson's relationship. The author kind of says that it was felt that Hoover did not identify as gay, but that he was being turned on by collecting the smut on other people. Which, FYI, I had a 200-page file on Truman Capote. I feel like one would need so many pages to have any kind of real documentation of all the crazy that man was. I love Capote, don't get me wrong. (laughs) Like, no, I love him. But his books are short. <laughs> so was he. Jay Edgar and old Joe McCarthy were horrible, terrible civil servants. But that's just the government, right? There has to be some hope, say, in the medical field. Yeah, okay. Uh, yeah, let's go to psychology. Yeah, psychology. So, you know, we mentioned Freud earlier. Did we already? We already did. Hey, okay. He writes about creativity, gay culture, this latent bisexuality that we all have. And so that leads us into Edmund Burglar. The Hamburglar himself. Yes, and we also had a great quote from him earlier. And he is described as the greatest Freudian since Freud. God, I want that title. Like, I just want that on a t-shirt. So he was very into penises also. Well, and so before we talk about how terrible he is, cool thing about him. Is there? He coined the term writer's block. I don't believe in writer's block. Neil Gaiman just told you that. Neil Gaiman told me that there is no such thing as shoe salesman's block. So there can't be writer's block. Right. So he published a book in 1956 called Homosexuality, Disease, or Way of Life. And in it, he argued that homosexuality is a disease 
and that legal restriction on homosexuality was necessary. He felt that homosexuals were a small, psychotic group of people that were maladjusted and self-indulgent. He felt that people were becoming homosexual just because of the glamorization of being homosexual. Does that sound familiar? Do people ever say that now? I feel like you're just quoting Fox News. Okay, burglar. And a great quote. He called them unreliable troublemakers and injustice collectors. I have a, I have a burglar quote again, too. And this one's equally painful. Power misused. Malice exaggerated. Cynicism pronounced. Subtle system of emotional blackmail perfected. These elements combine to make the working method of homosexuals. Lovely. Yeah. With his just ardent opposition against homosexuals, he had a real, let's call it a beef, with Kinsey. Fisticuffs. I know you love Kinsey. I do love Kinsey. I think he's fabulous. So good old Al Kinsey, my buddy, really kind of wanted to normalize all sexual behavior. He wanted to depathologize a lot of what goes on in people's heads when no one's watching. And also what goes on in people's bedrooms. Yeah. Like, when he was watching. Yeah. He was a cool cat. <laughs> he was a little bit of a voyeur. Not that there's, there's anything wrong, wrong with that. that. Right. Yeah, totally. He was the original. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Like that. I feel like that should be oh, yeah, like sure. his epitaph. But he published Sexual Behavior in Human Males in 1948 and don't get offended ladies there was a follow-up in 1949 sexual behavior in human females the first of those publications he cited that 37 percent of all males had at least some sort of overt homosexual experience to orgasm and 10 percent of males are more or less homosexual with eight percent being ardently homosexual and that number still stands it does i mean and i just read through all of the studies that have been conducted since that have affirmed his research. He's repeated it over and over and over again. Seems very valid. Yeah, well, and the Kinsey Institute is still a huge sexual research facility. And so he developed the famous Kinsey scale. I'm going to tell you a little bit about the Kinsey scale. This is to quote Kinsey. Males do not represent two discrete populations, heterosexual and homosexual. The world is not divided into sheep and goats, unless you're J. Edgar Hoover, who is a goat. It is fundamental of taxonomy that nature rarely deals with discrete categories. The living world is a continuum in each and every one of its aspects, while emphasizing the continuity of gradations between exclusively heterosexual and exclusively homosexual histories. It has seemed desirable to develop a sort of classification which could be based on relative amounts of heterosexual and homosexual experience or response in each history. An individual may be assigned a position on the scale for each period in his life. A seven-point scale comes near to showing the many gradations that actually exist. So the idea that there could be a scale, a spectrum, where one could fall definitely pissed burglar off well you know another person that was a big rival of burglar and his camp of psychiatry was evelyn hooker she sounds fierce she is not only was she female researcher at that time 
which makes her friggin' awesome. But in 1956, she published her work about homosexuals and helped dispel the rumor that it was associated with mental illness. So previously in studies and in studies after this, they would take samples of populations of people that said they were gay, but also had other psychiatric problems as well. They was just crazy. Yeah, and so one of those studies it was by Biber and the rest of his cohort, published a little after this one, 1962, called Homosexuality, a Psychoanalytical Study of Male Homosexuals. And it did that. So it took a group of men that said they were gay and also had other psychiatric problems as well. So they'd been in psychiatric care for a long time. It's cream of the crop. Yeah. For example, he diagnosed 28 of them as schizophrenic, 31 as neurotic, and 42 with character disorder. Personality disorder? Yeah. That's kind of what we'd say now. By doing that, was able to associate those two things together. Like, if you're gay, you must be crazy. Basically. Some of the fun things that came out of this research. And these might sound familiar if you think of ridiculous things your crazy uncle says about gay people at the Thanksgiving Day table. That close-binding intimate mothers... Oh, I thought we were going to have to blame the mother eventually. Of course. And they could be seductive to their sons and also very controlling and inhibiting... A detached and hostile father who also could be seductive. Okay, so pretty much, you know, having a mother or a father predisposes you to whatever condition he is assigning. Yeah, and the other one, and this is a quote, I love this. It was, fit the stereotype of the sissy during latency and adolescence. Oh, God. Fearing physical injury and avoiding aggressive activity. So studies like that are what Hooker was trying to debunk. Debunk, and she did. Good so, for her. Did Evelyn? And so she took a cohort of homosexual men that self-identified, and another cohort <clears throat> of men that were heterosexual that had not previously seen psychiatry, so not previously been what would be called polluted. So it's not a biased sample. Okay. And she did a full psychoanalytical evaluation of all of them. Okay. And listen to this. This is such great research. She took these analyses and gave them to three other psychologists. Okay, who were all trained to evaluate. Yes, and had them pick out the homosexuals. And they're not noted in any way, right? Right. These are just... You just have your standard psychoanalytical analysis. Okay. And guess what? They couldn't spot... The glitterati. Exactly. No gay mafia. No gay mafia. But they did not find anything. And this helped debunk all these other ridiculous studies looking at disturbed people that just happened to be gay and associating those things together. And so her research, along with lots of other people's research, a lot of people tried to repeat Bieber's study and no one was successful. And you know what an important point of science is that you learn in, like, seventh grade? That it should be able to be repeated? Yes, reproducibility. And guess what? Nope! But you know whose was? Kenzie's. That's right. A lot of these early studies about homosexual men were tainted by that fact that only white 
upper-class men could afford to go see an analyst twice a week. So they believed that this was something that happened to only affluent men in comfortable social stations. Because they were the only ones that could afford to go. To see an analyst, but they believed that they were the only ones who could really afford this kind of frivolous lifestyle choice. Oh, of course. So... I don't Lots have of terrible <laughs> research at this period in right. history. And I don't have on hand the research to refute that, but you could quickly look and see the uh, um, huge amount of people that are not well off that are gay and the large amount of young population that are homeless that are self-identified as gay. But, you know, a lot of this research by Hooker and some of her contemporaries is what led the American Psychiatric Association in 1973 to remove homosexuality from its official list of psychiatric disorders. Where was that? In the DSM. There is an amazing episode of This American Life in which they discuss the implications of having homosexuality listed as a mental defect, right, and the psychological process, disorder. Yeah, and the process of removing it from the DSM and the proponents and opponents of it. Excellent episodes, and like a whole episode, whole hour of it. And it's still, like, it was one of those things where I was trying to do work and listen to a podcast, and I stopped everything I was doing mm-hmm. and just, like, gave in to the goosebumps and listened. And you should probably go find it in the archives. We love you, Iram. And so that's some progress. And thankfully, we've continued to have progress you know slowly it gets better that's what he says and so 1978 fbi destroyed all of their files on sex perverts and government service that's progress in 1995 president clinton issued an executive order forbidding the government from discriminating on the basis of sexual orientation in the granting of security clearances that's the executive order that overturned Eisenhower's order. It stood for that long. Like 50 years. That makes me so sad. But I'm glad it was overturned. But it makes me so sad. Yeah, and in 1998, he signed an executive order banning anti-gay discrimination against any federal civilian employee. And both of those still stand. Then Don't Ask, Don't Tell was implemented for the military at this time. Right. And now we think of it as kind of, oh my gosh, I can't believe that happened. But at the time, it was viewed as a midway point, which it was. Yeah. It became. Yeah. And it's exactly what it was meant to do. Get those men in the service. Allow them to show that they can do what they can. That they can be important, valuable parts of our society, even though they just happen to be attracted to the same sex. And we did lose some good people during Don't Ask, Don't Tell. It did cost us some very specialized operatives. Between 1998 and 2004, 20 Arabic and six Farsi translators were fired. Why would we need that? Yeah, I know. We're not fighting a few wards over there or anything. Yeah, the ever-expanding need for, you know, Arabic translators. They were gay. Who needs those guys? But, you know, as many of you know, I'm sure, on June 26 in 2015, the Supreme Court made gay marriage the law of the land. And that was a very long, hard-fought battle. And we did not cover a minuscule amount of things that went into that. But it really is a great victory for the American people. President Obama's remarks in this, I think what he said is just so poignant in one sentence. He said, if all Americans are treated as equal, we are all more free. 
That's not just a story. 